Galatians chapter 1. And keep a place. We're going to be going, after we start in Galatians, we're going to be in Psalm 144. Psalm 144. Galatians 1, Psalm 144. We're studying through the book of Galatians. We're learning to live as light. And we understand that the only way that we can live the Christian life is through grace, through the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. Amen? It's got to be done through the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. You say, man, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I've never heard those terms. Well, through this study, you'll be learning what those things are. And uh, so let's start here. Galatians chapter 1. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. And we're actually going to make it to verse 4. We're, we're trucking now, all right? Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us as we study your word this morning together. Lord, um, we are here. We have gathered here to hear from you and from your word. Father, I pray that you will speak to our hearts and our minds through this word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in a lot of areas and a lot of the different uh, segments of Christianity, there are people who believe that the only way that they've been to a genuine church service or the only way that they have met with God is if there's an overwhelming emotional experience that goes along with it. How many of you know people? That's kind of the, the, their understanding of religion. And I'm thankful when God speaks to us in our emotions. There have been times when I have been very emotional. But when you study the Scriptures, and we're not going to take the time to break this down in this service, maybe we will another time. But when God speaks to our hearts, those cross-references are always the same thing as speaking to our mind. God speaks to us through our conscious understanding. We process that. The Holy Spirit teaches us and applies it to our lives. And after the Holy Spirit has applied that truth to our lives, then comes the emotional response. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's not. The issue is, what do you think about Jesus Christ and about His Word? Amen? So this morning, I want us to look at Galatians 1.4. And we're going to be breaking down this verse over the next few services. And look at what it says. Verse 4. Who gave Himself for our sins. Who gave Himself for our sins. Now, tonight in the evening service, we're going to look at what is he talking about with sin? What is sin? Sin is talked about a lot. We have a lot of different ideas about what sin is. We're going to look at the Bible and see what that means. That's going to be in the evening service. This morning, I want us to focus on this one phrase where it says, who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself. So the first thing that I want us to notice is an astounding question. An astounding question. Why would He give Himself? Why would He do that? Look with me at the book of Psalms. An astounding question. Why did He give Himself? Psalm 144. And look at verse 3. Lord, what is man? that thou takest knowledge of him. We sang uh, a passage from another psalm this morning. Who are we that he would be mindful of us? But look at this passage. It's a little bit different. Psalm 144, verse 3. Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Why would God even think about us? How much time do you spend thinking about fleas? A lot if you got them. <laughs> but honestly, how much time do you spend thinking about fleas? How much time do you spend thinking about cockroaches? When I was uh, in 
we had just been married for a little while. And I used to travel selling, or they, the guys would sell siding, and they'd sign a, a finance contract. Well, then I would go into the home afterward, after the financing had been approved, and I'd get them to sign all the paperwork. Well, I drove to Indianapolis one night, and I had to get this guy to sign the paperwork. And I walked in, and his house was really dark, and it smelled terrible. You know, you walked in, and I walked in, and my eyes started stinging, you know. And he turned on the lights, and I saw this black table, little round black table. And as I noticed, the table was shimmering a little bit. And so when I told him I had the paperwork for him to sign, he said, okay, let's do it right over here. And he took his arm and swept. The, the table was completely covered in cockroaches. He, he swept his arm across it and put the paperwork down and signed it on the table. Man, dry, the whole way driving home, I'm going like this. I'm thinking I, get, I got stuff crawling on me and all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I saw Melissa right there already scratching herself. <laughs> but other than that, how much time do you spend thinking about cockroaches? <laughs> Talk about something else, please move on. I, now, I, I don't know that many of us would really want to be associated with cockroaches. I think of that Orkin commercial or whatever it is, you know, where the cockroach knocks on the door. Says, Can I come in? <laughs> <laughs> but we really don't think about that stuff. And how many of you would die for a cockroach? Or a flea? See, these are... Now, it's been said that the cockroach is the most advanced form of life on this earth. Supposedly, it's the only creature that could survive a nuclear explosion. How many of you ever heard that? It's supposed to be this perfect form of life. I don't know about all that. But what we do think of is that it's a lower form of life. Is that right? You know, if I see a cockroach, I'm not, you know, holding the door open for it. You know, I'm going... That's what I'm doing with a cockroach. Okay, if you're from PETA, you might, you know, not, you know, think that's a nice idea. Um, but honestly, do you realize how far inferior of a life form, how inferior a life form we are compared to the Lord? And are you ready for this? The distance is much greater than the distance between us and a cockroach because we're both created beings. Now, let me say this. We do have dominion over the created beings, over the other created beings. Man is a, is a higher form of life than an animal. You know, I know that in some areas they want to teach that, that monkeys are our brothers, Right? Now, I know some of you, your brothers act like monkeys, but that's not the same thing. No, they really are an inferior form of life. But when you think about these, these bugs, this is an astounding question. Why would the Lord even think about us? And then look at the way the psalmist describes man. We're, we're still in Psalm 144, verse 3. Lord, what is man? that thou takest knowledge of him, or the son of man, that thou makest account of him. Have you ever heard somebody say this about someone? That guy is worthless. I had a friend who said, uh, you guys are as useful as a trunk full of dead men. You know, and I, apparently we weren't working very well. <laughs> right? But here's the idea. Why would God take account and show us value, give us value? Then look at what it says. Man is like to vanity. His days are as a shadow that passeth away. How valuable is a shadow? It's not very valuable. You know, unless you're... Was it, who was it that was chasing a shadow? Peter Pan? Is that the... You know? That's fiction. Most of us don't really, unless we're looking for direction, we don't really care about our shadow. Normally, our shadow is in the way. Like if you're playing golf and you're trying to putt and the, the shadow is in the way... That's about the only time I think about my shadow. And the Bible says that it's like this. 
That's what man is. Man is like a shadow that passes away. Now imagine if I just closed there. We'd all walk out thinking, man, I'm not worth very much. (laughs) That's what's so amazing. God, God Himself values us. God Himself says that, that we are more valuable to Him than the birds, than the, than the created being. God has instilled value to us. And the Bible says, let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians, the Bible says, who, talking about Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins. Why an astounding question. Why would He give Himself? And the answer is right there. For our sins. For our sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He gave Himself because you are a sinner. I am a sinner. There is... And this this goes so far... You're not going to hear this on Oprah. Okay? You are a sinner. You are not good. You're not okay. You deserve hell. Everyone does. Now, this kind of, this kind of message is mocked. You know, if you watch a television show, there's a preacher, and he's standing there preaching against sin, and then they show him as some kind of a moral degenerate. Because this kind of preaching, it violates our, our public consciousness, our, the cultural consciousness of meism, of self-esteem, of self-worth, and self-aggrandizement. And that thinking is completely against the Word of God. And that's where the question comes, why do bad things happen to good people? And I had a man come to me and he said, he'd never talked to me about religious things ever. And he came to me, it was on the golf course, on the driving range, and he came over to me and he said, uh, I've asked, he said, I've asked every preacher in town this question. I want to hear what you have to say. Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? I had a friend, this is what he said, I had a friend who just a couple of weeks ago got killed on a motorcycle. He was a good man. He was just 30, 40 years old and he had children. He was a good man. Why does God let stuff like that happen? He said he'd ask every preacher he knew in town that question. He wanted to ask me. And I said, well, man, I'm sorry your friend died. I'm sorry that your friend died. I said, but I think that the premise to your question needs to be addressed. And he said, what's that? I said, the premise to your question is, why do bad things happen to good people? And I said, what you don't understand is that nobody's good. There are no good people. Bad things don't happen to good people. It's never happened before other than Jesus Christ being crucified. That's the only time that a bad thing happened to a good person. And we're going to see about that in a minute. But I said to him, I said, you got to understand, everybody's a sinner. We all deserve hell. Anything good that comes in life, the, the sunshine, the rain, the grass, the food that we have to eat, every good thing that we experience in this world is only by the grace of God and is completely undeserved. Bad things don't happen to good people. I'm sorry that your friend died. I don't know why he died. And I'm not making light of it. But your question was, why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. And he said, hmm. He said, none of the other preachers said that. And I said, well, all I know is the Bible says that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. For us. You see, we all deserve hell. Now, let me just ask you a question. How many of you already knew that? Seriously. How many of you already knew that? And I know our tendency, those of us, especially those of us who have grown up in church, when you begin with these texts, uh, 90% of the people in this room 
could quote Romans 5.8, but God commended His love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what we naturally do is when we get to that subject, if we've been around the Lord for a long time, we just kind of tune out. I know this. Don't tune out. First of all, there might be someone here who's not born again, and when you hear that being taught, you need to pray. But God will speak to somebody. But secondly, this is such an amazing truth, and we're going to head deeper into that, why He gave Himself for us. But the first thing that we've got to get settled is that He did this for our sins. That's the only reason He died, is for our sins. You and me, everyone in the world, never has there been someone who did not need to have the blood that Jesus Christ shed applied to their account. Everyone is a sinner. Listen to what the Bible says. Uh, Ephesians, and don't take your time, the time to turn there. We'll turn to some other passages in a minute. Ephesians 2.12 says that at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. Listen to what the Bible says. Having no hope without God in the world. I'm telling you, a man can live without a lot of stuff, but it's almost impossible to live without hope. It's almost impossible to live without hope. Ecclesiastes 7.20 For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. There is not a just man on the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.20 The soul that sinneth it shall die. The Bible is very clear on this. 1 John 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If anybody says they're not a sinner, they're a liar. They're a liar. All of us are sinners. That's why Jesus Christ died. See, we're all in a sinking ship. The ship's going down and there's no one who can save us. It's like being on a ship that's going down and no one can swim. No one can swim. There might be somebody bigger than you next to you. If they can't swim, you grab onto that person. Is that going to help you? No. The only person that can swim the stream of salvation was Jesus Christ. And that's why he died on the cross. That's why he died. This is a truly hopeless situation. But let's all turn to Romans 5, 8. I want you to see something. I want you to see two of the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. Two of the most wonderful words in the history of language. Romans chapter 5. Let's start reading in verse 6. Romans 5, 6. For when we were yet without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So that without strength. Have you ever been in a situation where you were completely without strength? If you've done any weight training, you know, you're, you're, you're on the bench and you're maxing out. There'll come a point where it's impossible for you to push it anymore. You all understand what I'm saying? How many of you wrestled? You, you did wrestling. You can come to a point in wrestling where you're with, or, or as they would say in the South, wrestling. Um, you can come to a point where you have no strength left. You're just defeated. You can't do anything. Um, how many of you have ever been out in the water swimming and you got to the place where you had no strength? Any of you ever been there? How many? Seriously, you've been there and somebody had to pull you in. Man, that is a scary, scary time. That without strength, that's the way we are for salvation. We have no strength for salvation. That's when Christ died for the ungodly. When he saw that there were no other options, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, let's read on. We were in verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, would you mark that in due time? We're going to reference that in a minute. In due time. Christ died... For the ungodly. Now notice, he didn't die for the righteous people. Verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. 
But here are the two most wonderful words ever written. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what I want you to think about. No, none of us would die for a cockroach. Sorry, Melissa. None of us would die for a cockroach. Do we, are we pretty much in agreement here on that? Right? But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that while we're yet sinners, that means we're worthy of death. That means that's all we're worthy of is death. That means without worth. That's who Christ died for. It's an amazing, astounding question. Why would He die? Why would He give Himself for our sins? That's love. That's all that you can call that. Um, we, were, we saw, it was a tornado, I think, just this past week. And a mother had fallen on her child. And the mother was killed, but the child lived. We can understand that. There's no love like a mother's love. We can understand that. No one would do that for a cockroach. Now, here's the deal. I know there's probably somebody here thinking, you know, I'm getting kind of tired of him calling me a cockroach. And I understand that. The problem is, and honestly, the problem is, we really do think more highly of ourselves than we ought. When you understand how truly needy you are, that's when you understand how wonderful Christ's sacrifice was. So, an astounding question. Why did He give Himself? But now, let's look at an astounding statement. And this is going to sound redundant, but it's not. You're going to see where we're going in a second. An astounding statement. Now, everybody get your Bible. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. We all doing okay this morning? Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Who gave himself. Would you mark gave? Gave. It's amazing what happens when you study the Scriptures word by word. When you really start looking at the emphasis of these individual statements. He gave himself. You know what this means? When He gave Himself for our sins, He was the substitute for the sinner. He was the substitute for the sinner. Okay, now, familiar passage for some of us, but I want you to get the connection. It, it, right next to there, it, it, if you take a second and write 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He gave Himself for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I want you to see something really important. All right? And then we'll go there. You'll just turn back in your Bible just a couple of pages. 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you look at verse 20 for the context, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did, did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. So what he's saying is, we're standing here talking to you. Jake, come here. This is my fine son, Jacob. All right? So, Jacob, it's like this. I'm standing here telling Jacob, be reconciled to God. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, because we as saved people are Christ's ambassadors, what he needs to understand, when I'm telling him to be reconciled to God, that's just as if it was Jesus Christ saying it. That's what the text says. So when you tell someone that they need to be saved, that they need to have their, their sins washed away by the blood of Jesus so they can be reconciled. Remember, we've been torn apart by sin. We need to be reconciled. So when I tell him that he needs to be reconciled, it is just as if Jesus Christ were saying it. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.20 says. All right? So be reconciled. Okay, you're going to be seated. <laughs> You notice he doesn't even move. He's so used to this stuff. He does, it doesn't even phase him. 
Uh, I, I had on, I was working on Lydia's bookshelves and built her some bookshelves. And um, I had on my iPod, had my headphones in, and I was listening to the Canadian tenors yesterday. And so I'd walk through the house singing opera um, very badly. And uh, so I, I really enjoyed doing that to Lydia while she was trying to read yesterday. And what's fun, I came up behind her and sang as loud as I could this deal, this big, you know, ah! you know, kind of like that. And Lydia just said, thanks for that. She don't, they don't even budge anymore. But anyway, all right, so when I tell him to be reconciled, it's just as if Jesus Christ were saying it. That's what verse 20 says. Now look at verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us. You see what that says? For he hath made him to be. Would you, would you mark that? Be sin for us. He hath made him to be sin for us. Now, I want you to get the analogy. Don't miss this. So now, Patrick, I not only want you to die for the cockroaches, I want you to become a cockroach. Do you see? Now remember, the difference between Patrick and a cockroach is a long way. Amen? On the evolutionary scale, how long do you think it would take for a cockroach to turn into a person? Never! Okay? That's a long way. But as far removed as Patrick is from a cockroach, on the scale of life forms. The difference between that and then God's relationship to man is that difference of Patrick and the cockroach multiplied by infinity. And Jesus Christ not only became the cockroach, He became sin. You see what that says? Was made to be Sin. So are you saying that Jesus Christ is sinful? No. Not at all. Not at all. But that's what happened on the cross. Remember the Bible says, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. That serpent in the wilderness. The serpent's always a picture of Satan. Always. Everywhere in the Bible. Except there, where when they were bit by the serpents, they made a brazen serpent. And if you look, you could look at the serpent and live, Right? And so Jesus told that story, and then He said, As the serpent was lifted up, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And then He said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto Me. When He was lifted up on the cross, if you could have seen Jesus Christ with spiritual eyes, He would have looked just like Satan. He was made to be sin for us. That's an amazing astounding statement. He gave Himself. And here's the deal. He gave Himself in full knowledge of what would happen. Nothing hid from Him. Verse 21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. His righteousness for our sin. It's an astounding statement. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just Jesus, for the unjust us, that He might bring us to God, reconcile us. That's why He died on the cross. And then He says, but He was quickened by the Spirit. He rose from the dead. So that's an astounding statement. But I want you to see this. Remember what we said, an astounding question. Why would He give Himself? Well, for our sins. An astounding statement that he actually did it. Nobody made him, he actually gave it. And then, I want you to see an astounding accomplishment. Now, now here's where we're going to dive in, and I want you to see this. Jesus Christ, we'll go back to First Corinthians or to uh, Galatians, Galatians 1. And again, we're focusing on that idea, who gave himself for our sins. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Now, will you go back to verse 3, and will you do something? Will you mark our Lord? Would you mark Lord right there? A mistake that you and I can make is we can look at that as a prefix 
like Mr. or Mrs. No, no. He's the Lord. How many other lords are there? None. So this is the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself. But it was an accomplishment. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's dive into this a little bit. Jesus Christ was not defeated. Do you know that some religions teach that Jesus Christ was defeated on the cross? The Muslims are so extreme on this. The Muslims don't believe that God would kill a prophet like Jesus. So at the last minute, God substituted Judas for Jesus Christ. And it was Judas that hung on the cross. That's what the Muslims teach. Because it would have been a conquering of the prophet for him to die on the cross. Um, some of the, the Pentecostal, charismatic, word of faith people that are on television, that's what they believe. Uh, they, they believe that Jesus Christ was defeated on the cross. How many of you think that sounds strange? Seriously. Anyone ever heard of Kenneth Copeland? Kenneth Copeland? Listen to what Kenneth Copeland said. Direct quote. Satan conquered Jesus on the cross. And what they believe is because Satan conquered Jesus on the cross, that now, by faith, we can command Jesus to do whatever we want him to do. That's the word of faith. Um, I, I knew somebody that believed that, and he was driving a brand new Mercedes. And I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, you need to give me this car. You know, his word of faith ended right there. I'm serious. This happened. This is what they believe. Kenneth Hagin, the father of the Word of Faith movement out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Listen to what he said. Man was created on terms of equality with God. And he could not... And, or, no, wait a minute. Let me read it again. Man was created on terms of equality with God, and he could stand in God's presence... Listen, without any consciousness of inferiority. You've got to wonder, have these people ever read the Bible? What happens when God reveals himself? Flat on your face. Or if you're the enemy of God, flat on your back. Right? And these people understand that this weird charismatic stuff that's out there, it is anti-God. It is anti-Bible. Those are two of the worst statements you'll ever hear. Benny Hen said, when you pray, don't pray in thy, let thy will be done. Don't let those faith-destroying words come out of your mouth. It's faith-destroying to pray that God's will be done because we control God's will. Folks, the amazing thing, the astounding thing about Jesus Christ giving Himself is that no one made him do it. Let, let's look at this. Man had no power to conquer him. Look at John chapter 10. Everyone, look at John chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew. You've got to look at this. John chapter 10 and verse 17. Now, honestly, how many of you those statements that I just made kind of made you a little bit mad? You know? You won't let anybody talk about your mother, but some of us don't have any problems with somebody talking about our Jesus or about our God. It's a... All right. John chapter 10 and verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. You see what he's saying? Jesus Christ is saying, I lay down my life. And just in case you misunderstand it, let's read on. Look at what it says. No man, verse 18, no man taketh it from me. You might want to mark that. Nobody, so the question has been asked for centuries. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? No man taketh my life. That's what Jesus said. We'll let Jesus Christ answer it. Amen? No man taketh it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, 
and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. He said, nobody takes it from me. I have the power to give up my life. I have the power to raise from the dead again. Nobody takes my... That's what it means for Jesus who gave Himself. Nobody killed Him. He didn't just offer Himself. He gave Himself. When they came to take Him, He didn't just give in. We're going to see that. All right? So no man had no power to conquer Him. And only Jesus could do this. Go with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. I want you to see something, what the Bible says about this. Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, and verse 8. Look at what the Bible says. There is no man, Ecclesiastes 8, 8, There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. Here's what the Bible says. No man has power in the day of death. If it's your day to die, you're going to die. Right? No man has power over his own death. You don't. If it's your day to die, you're going to die. But what if you want to die? What about that? Go to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. It's amazing how man is so full of himself and thinking how powerful man is in relation to God. Look at Revelation chapter 9 and verse 6. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. See, the Bible is very clear. Only Jesus Christ, of all men, only Jesus Christ is in complete control of His own personal life and death. Here's the deal. I heard somebody say this years ago, and I thought, that's kind of strange. But all of us are completely indestructible until God's done with us. Now, that doesn't mean that you get to go and jump off a bridge if you choose to. That's not what I'm talking about. But the simple fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ is the only person who could say, no, you're not going to kill me yet. You're not going to kill me yet. You understand that Jesus Christ's life, from the time of His conception, men tried to kill Him. Men and Satan were trying to kill Him from the time that He was, even before He was born. Joseph thought to put her away privately because men would stone her. Right? Then Satan had her ride all the way to Bethlehem when she was full term. Can you imagine riding mile after mile after mile, ladies, when you're ready to deliver? With a satanic emperor saying, we want every man to come? They didn't know they were doing God's will, did they? Satan. Remember what happened? Genesis 3.15. There was a war that began. God said, I will put enmity between thee, speaking to Satan, between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. The seed of woman is Jesus Christ himself. So Satan hated him and wanted to kill him. And all through the history of Israel, Satan was trying to wipe out Israel to destroy the line that the Messiah would come through. And now when the Messiah has come... God speaks through angels to Joseph, to Mary. And Satan knows where Jesus Christ is. He's trying to have her killed. Herod kept her from even having a bed. Or Satan even kept her from having a bed when they got to Bethlehem. She had to go in a cave. Everything he could do to keep that baby from being delivered. After Jesus Christ was grown, when he was first born, By the time he was two o'clock, Herod killed every boy his age. Satan tried to kill him. Wanted to kill him. Wanted to kill him. 
Then what about on the Sea of Galilee? Jesus Christ is asleep in the boat. This huge storm comes up from out of nowhere. Remember, these are trained fishermen. They, they knew what the weather would be like. And this huge storm comes up. Satan trying to kill him. And isn't it interesting? Jesus Christ was not afraid. Who was he talking to when he said, peace, be still? Peace, be still. And the disciples said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, remember, Satan can control those storms. Eurachlodon, when Luke and Paul were going to Rome, Paul was going to Rome to preach the gospel, and this storm comes up, and even the trained sailors didn't know what to do with it, and the man of God stands up to fight it. The, the storm was even named. It was called Eurachlodon, a satanic storm. Satan tried to kill Jesus Christ from the day he was born and even before. And then, look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10, look at verse 30. Jesus Christ teaching, he said, I, John 10, verse 30, I'll wait until I hear the pages stop. I want everybody to be there. John 10, verse 30. Jesus Christ speaking, I and my Father are one. All right, that's Jesus Christ claiming to be God. That was blasphemy to the Jews. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Would you mark the word again? They had tried to do it before. No man taketh my life. I lay it down willingly. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. You see, they tried to stone him. Look at the next verse. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. They couldn't stone him. They couldn't do it. It wasn't his time. Look at the next, look at uh, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. They had tried to stone him several times. Luke chapter 4. This is at the beginning of Jesus Christ's ministry. He had gone to Nazareth where he was raised. He's preaching there and he's telling them that God is going to work through the Gentiles. All right, so Luke chapter 4, look at verse 28. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Remember when we were preaching through Mark, we told this story. And the com one of the commentators that I read. Now, we don't know that this was a miracle. <laughs> he just passed through. A bunch of people are going to push him off a cliff and kill him. And he just passes through them and goes on his way. What, did they forget what they were there for? Anyway, look... So it wasn't his time yet. When they were trying to stone him, when they were trying to push him off a cliff, Jesus knew, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. And then, an astounding truth, Jesus Christ was in charge from the beginning. Now, don't miss this. When he gave his life, he was in charge of this whole situation from the beginning. Look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. We're just looking at, he gave himself. What does that mean? Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Remember what happened? Jesus Christ takes uh, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on the mountain, and he reveals his glory to them. And while he, they're up on the mountain, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Moses and Elijah come and are talking, talking with Jesus Christ. All right, so let's look at verse 28. And it came to pass about in eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias. Elias is the Greek way of saying Elijah. Who appeared in glory, so they were also glorified, shining, and spake of his decease. Now look at what it says. And I hope you'll mark this. Which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Understand, it is an accomplishment for God to die. Amen? And notice the text. Remember, words mean things. Who was going to accomplish his death? He was. No man taketh my life. I lay it down willingly. The other thing that I want you to see, when we think of accomplishments, we think of climbing Mount Everest. Amen? We think of breaking a four-minute mile. We, we think of accomplishments. Uh, we think of things that are great. We think of the U.S. hockey team beating Russia. That's an accomplishment. Jesus Christ's accomplishment was giving Himself for our sins. What an amazing accomplishment. You see, His death, Jesus was never a victim. He was Lord. He was Lord. He spake of His decease which should be accomplished at Jerusalem. You see, it wasn't going to happen at Nazareth to have the people stone her because she was with child. It wasn't going to be in Nazareth. It wasn't going to be in Bethlehem because she gave birth in a dirty cave with animals. It wasn't going to be there. It wasn't going to be on the brow of a cliff in Judea or in Nazareth. It wasn't going to be stoned in Judea. It was going to be in Jerusalem on Mount Calvary on a cross on the Passover, on the exact day that had been prophesied 400 years before in Daniel chapter 9. Remember, in John chapter 7, twice Jesus Christ said, My time is not yet come. My time is not yet come. Jesus Christ was in charge through this whole process. That's why I hate the picture, the pictures of Jesus Christ in his effeminate pose, standing there, being defeated. Can we see what it really looked like? The Bible describes what it really looked like. Look with me in uh, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you, speaking of Jesus. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. You see this? Judas thought it was his, his idea. He was going to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus Christ. He thought he was in charge of the situation. Right? Look at verse 21. Uh, yes, verse 21. And as they did eat, he, Jesus Christ, said... Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Jesus Christ knew what was going on. He knew what was going on. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Do you think maybe Judas should have listened? He was there listening to what Jesus Christ said. Look at the next verse. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? See, he's just going to act like the rest of the disciples. Is it I, Lord? And look at what Jesus Christ said to him. He said, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So understand the context. As Jesus Christ is instituting the Last Supper, He's instituting it with one that would betray Him, knowing who it would be. Look with me at verse uh, 46. Matthew 26, verse 46. Rise. Let us be going. This is after he had been praying with his disciples and they had fallen asleep. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve came with a great multitude with swords and staves and of the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave him a sign saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith, he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. 
So again, Judas thinks that he's in charge of this. He's going to come and betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. And he thinks that he is in charge. Look at John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Verse 26. And I want you to see how in charge Jesus Christ was. Jesus answered, again, he's talking about how someone's going to betray him. Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. So a piece of bread dipped in the, uh, in the, the cup. So he's going to dip it. And whoever he gives it to, that's the one who's going to betray him. All right. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Satan himself entered into Judas. Now, I want you to see how in charge Jesus Christ was. Look at what Jesus Christ says, not to Judas, but to Satan. Look at what Jesus Christ says to them. He says, And after the sob, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Who's in charge? You see, Satan entered into Judas. Satan thinks he has this great plan to destroy the Messiah. And Jesus says, Hey, you, Satan, get on with it. Get on with it. Jesus Christ was not this meek person who was taken against His will. Jesus Christ was Lord, not a victim. He gave Himself. Then, in the garden, look at John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus has been praying in the garden before His crucifixion. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into the which he entered with his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, Cometh hither with lanterns and torches and weapons. So here you have, you got to get this. They're just in this quiet park in the dark at night. And all of a sudden, there's this group of angry men with torches and weapons. All right, what are you going to do in that setting? Look at what Jesus Christ does. Verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? He just stepped right up to him. He was in charge. He took charge of the soldiers, of the priests, of the whole thing. Who seek ye? And look at what they say. Verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Now you understand that's the name of God. I am. And look at what happens. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Remember his disciples, people that love him when they see him, they fall on their faces and worship. The enemies of God at the power of God always fall back. Think about that the next time you're watching a faith healer on television. But look at what's going on here. Jesus Christ is completely in charge whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. I am He. And they go flying back, falling down at His Word. And now look at what happens. Got picture this in your mind. Look at what happens. Then asked He them again. Are you ready? They're on the ground. Who are you looking for? You ready for this? You found Him. Right? Like a friend of mine went to catch a shark. And then he had to figure out what he was going to do with it once he caught it because the shark was bigger than his boat. Right? They found him. And look at what he says. Verse 7. 
Then asked he them again. I like that again. Whom seek ye? And can you picture this? Don't say it again. Don't say I am he again. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If there ye seek me, if, if therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. So now here's one man commanding an army to let his friends go. What did they do? They let his friends go. Now, it's such an amazing context. And I want to give you this one last passage on this. Go to Matthew chapter 26. He gave himself for our sins. Matthew chapter 26. And verse 49. Another account of the same story, but with more information. Verse 49. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, can you imagine? You think that is a word full of meaning at that moment? Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Uh, I was listening to James Knox on this this week, preacher that's coming for our Bible conference. And he, he said this, it's something I had never thought of. Remember Jesus Christ had said, I am he. And they had fallen down. He said, Peter thought they were done. He was going to go finish them off. But he got a guy on the ground, cut off his ear. I don't know if that's what happened, but it's kind of interesting. Then look at what happens. Here's what Jesus does. So he smote off his ear at the end of verse 51. Then said Jesus unto him, put up thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? And remember, then he brushed off the ear and he put it back on the servant's head and healed him. But don't miss this. He said, I could call twelve legions of angels. Don't Please, don't miss this. Listen to what he said. Remember, in the Old Testament, one angel, God sent one angel, and that angel killed 185,000 men in one night. Do you know what 12 legions could do? Let's say that they're all equal in power. 12 legions, if you take 185,000 men each, that's 13.2 billion people that these angels could kill. Jesus said, no man taketh my life, but I lay it down willingly. He gave himself. It's an astounding truth. He accomplished His death. He was no one's victim. He was Lord all the way through it. Well, Colossians chapter 2, the Bible says that when He did this, He spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, I want you to listen to two more verses and we'll be done. Familiar verses that say the same thing. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. This is an important truth. Titus chapter 2. Let's finish up here. Titus chapter 2 and we'll be done. I hope you never think of these verses the same way again. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. It's amazing how much doctrine is in these five verses right here. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at what it says right here. Who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. 
Why did Jesus Christ give Himself for you? To buy you back. He created you. He created you. And then you got lost in sin. He created you to have fellowship with Him. And then because of sin, you've been separated. So He died. He gave Himself all that we've been looking at. He gave Himself to buy you back, to redeem you, to buy you back to Himself and to purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. You see, Jesus Christ died for you for two reasons. To buy you back and to make you different. We have a reason to live now. We have a reason to live because He gave Himself for our sins. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word.